0: Buford, on the web at wagp.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line for the next hour. If you have questions as you've been studying God's word that you'd like help with, or maybe a particular issue in your life or church or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, it's 843-525-1859. We also have a lot of people who listen through the Internet, and some of those email us here directly, and you can do so at tbl which stands for the Bible line, T-B-L at W-A-G-P dot net. When you uh, call, you're free to go on the air live or you can simply remain totally anonymous and dictate your question uh, to Deb, who's here taking phone calls today. Rick, as always, it's great to be here on the Bible line.
0: It is indeed, Pastor. And we've got a number of questions that have already come in. So let's go to one from Gregory, who is listening to us online at uh, Derry, New Hampshire, would like to know, how can I possess effective evangelism? What are some ways to be effective in spreading the gospel to non-believers, as well as those in different regi- uh, religions?
1: Well, key, I think, to becoming effective in spreading the gospel to those <clears throat> who are in other religions is to start with just folks here in America who maybe at the minimal amount are Christianized. Because if you can't share the gospel in an easier situation, it will be certainly more challenging and a more difficult situation. But the gospel is the gospel. It doesn't really change. Sometimes you contextualize the gospel in light of the culture that you're in. Sometimes you adapt some of your own cultural uh, distinctions in order to be all things to all men. Uh, Hudson Taylor, who was one of the first, you know, English missionaries to go to China. When he got there, he went in traditional English garb with a traditional approach and no one seemed to listen to him. So he decided to uh, shave his hair, kind of wear a ponytail like many of them were at that time. Uh, He put on Chinese garb and all of a sudden he had a little bit more of an audience and God used him to open the gospel to China, and his ministry, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, went all the way until the communists under Mao Zedong came in in 1949 and drove the missionaries out. Uh, And that was not necessarily a bad thing in respect that it spread the missionaries across Southeast Asia and even to other parts of China, where they hid and continued to share the gospel. Some estimate the church in China is high now as 100 million people. Uh, so uh, my point though is that you need to know how to share the gospel that's kind of the starting point point. and we have a um, course of study at Community Bible Church that we open to the general public it's called the Institute for Biblical Studies and it's a 33 hour course of study that is set up uh, for someone who really wants to go further Uh, In fact, if you wanted to go with a missions agency overseas and be a missionary, say, if you haven't been to seminary, at the minimum, most would require a Bible certificate. So this is a Bible certificate degree. Uh, And we actually teach it not on a college level, but a master's level. So there's courses like bibliology, angelology, Christology, soteriology, pneumatology, uh, there is a number of electives, and one of the electives that you can uh, select is how to give away your faith, and that's a very helpful course that I've taught on how to communicate the gospel. You know, when I first started sharing Christ as a new believer in the um, in the early 1970s, 1975, when I came to Christ. In fact, the first week I was a believer. I had an assignment in the class I was in because that's how I became a Christian. I was in a class learning how to share my faith. They thought I was a Christian and I became a Christian. I had never read the Bible before in my life. And uh, that week we had to go out and share with someone. And, and so you could start with, uh, John three sixteen, John ten ten. 10. That's how the four spiritual laws began. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, and then the first verse was, uh, I, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, and then God's love, John three sixteen, and so forth. It just kind of went from there. And in a culture that was largely Christianized, uh, that worked. Today, people need a little more definition. They need a little more help in terms of uh, context. And so I've written a booklet entitled How to Give Away, or excuse me, uh, How to Have God as Your Friend. And we use it here. It's translated now into uh, the Indian Hindu language. It's translated into Spanish. It's translated into Russian. It's translated into Ukrainian. It's in English. And there's another translation that will soon be underway. And it's a—it's uh, just a simple presentation that starts in Genesis and really gives you the full picture of the Bible, which is what people need today. Uh, it's more like Paul sharing Christ in Acts 17. Uh, with utter pagans who have n- little to no understanding of the Bible. Now that is to say, that's where I would begin. If you find yourself going to another culture or these cultures that are coming to us, then you might want to know a little bit about if you're going to India, you'd want to know a little bit about Hinduism and what they actually believe. If you were going to a Muslim country, what 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 they embrace and so forth uh, answers in Genesis is coming out with a new volume Uh, Ken Ham's ministry that you hear uh, and listen to here at WAGP on the religions of the world. I wrote one of the chapters in that volume. It's called Zoroastrianism. You'd say, well, I can't even say the word. Why would I want to know about it? Well, because there is a bunch of folks now in the United States that either embrace Zoroastrianism or a form of it because it's uh, it's dribbled off into other religions. So if you understand the basic tenets of that faith, then it can become a springboard to share the gospel with someone that you might meet from that faith. So uh, the course uh, would be a huge help to you. And I think I taught it over eight weeks. Um, so there's eight messages to it. And if you learn that course, it would be a tremendous help and a great starting place for you in sharing Christ. You know, one of the things I look for when uh, missionaries come and ask our church for support, and now we support over 300 missionaries. One of the questions that we ask them on the missionary application form is, when was the last time you took someone through the plan of salvation? And if uh, a guy comes back and he says, well, you know, two years ago, I shared Christ with this person. And. You know, I'm a little bit reluctant to want to really get behind him financially to go overseas to share the gospel, because if he can't do it in our culture, uh, he's going to have even greater difficulty doing it overseas. And if it's not way of life here, you know, sending someone halfway across the world doesn't make it way of life there. So it begins here in our own Jerusalem, and that's where you start. So take the course. That's what I would say to uh, this gentleman from Derry, New Hampshire, who's called. Let's go to the
0: next question. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I was speaking to someone recently, and they, they told me they were reading in the book of John, and they were of course, has a John MacArthur study Bible, as I do. And they were reading the commentary, and uh, they told me they found something interesting in there. They, John MacArthur says that at the end of Chapter 7 and in the first 11 verses of Chapter 8, where they talk about the woman caught in the act of adultery, that the earliest and most reliable transcripts do not record that account in john's gospel now of course i get a little you know i wasn't you know upset but i was and and i don't want to put words in john macarthur's mouth or anybody else's but it just seemed like the way they were talking is like someone added that to it and of course i believe that god's word is god's word but i was wondering have you ever heard of that and what do you think
1: well, certainly I have, and uh, it's a position that some people take, and so in some Bibles like the NIV Study Bible, uh, it goes from the end of chapter 7, and then it begins in chapter 8 and verse 12, and you say, what happened to this large section of Scripture? Where, where, where did it go? Um, and that's an important question. So it, it comes down to an issue of what's called, without getting too technical here, um, textual criticism. Uh, textual criticism is the word is not being used in a negative sense in terms of uh, we're criticizing the Bible, but we're trying to understand whether or not a verse should be included. And he, and here's the challenge is that we have um, 101% of the Bible. And the reason we have 101% of the Bible, and we're trying to sometimes discern the original 100% is for the simple reason that there are, Uh, sometimes scribal notes that are put out in the margin uh, what we would say in the margin but actually in the text because when they wrote on ancient paper because paper was so expensive and so costly you didn't have one the luxury of a margin Uh, every square inch of white space is filled from end to end and if it was your own personal copy and you wrote a note you might put that note in there and sometimes, um, you know, it becomes very clear, well, that was not something that God wrote, that was a scribal note. And when you compare manuscripts with manuscripts, a lot of that, you know, helps us to think that through. So when you come to the beginning of chapter 7 and verse three 53 all the way through chapter 8 and verse 11, uh, this is a section that has been attacked. Um, the RSV, for instance, Revised Standard Version which was not done by conservative scholarship, they relegated as a footnote um, and they set it off from the rest of the text, as does the NIV. And I suppose there have been gallons of ink that have been spilt on this section of scripture. Uh, was this part of what God actually said? Now, if you have the New American Standard as a matter of integrity, they will put uh, 753 here all the way through 811 in brackets. If you have the Old King James you, you'll notice there are no brackets around this verse or for that many for that matter and uh, around any other verses that would fall into this kind of category. And the reason was is because when the King James was version was done, the King James version of the Bible they had a limited number of manuscripts and it was in all those manuscripts. Uh, Since that time, thousands of additional manuscripts have been found in, in a handful of them that this particular piece is not there. And so out of integrity, the New American Standard puts it in brackets, but they include it in the body of the text because they believe it was inspired and they believe it should be in the body of the text. Uh, But they put it in brackets as a matter of integrity to let you know that there are some ancient manuscripts that that don't um, contain this. And by the way, when we speak of um, the inerrancy of the Bible, uh, people who believe in biblical inerrancy, as I do, believe that the Bible has no mistakes. And we make a conclusion from that, not on a section of Scripture like this. Those who argue against inerrancy do so on the basis that they would say, well, there were sinners who wrote the Bible, and that's true, um, but denying the ability of the Holy Spirit to override their sin nature, they say that their sinful prejudices and mistakes came into the original text of Scripture. And I don't believe that, because one, Jesus taught the supernatural inspiration would be given to these men by the Holy Spirit, which would therefore eliminate any error. And in these few places in the Bible where people wonder, well, is this a scribal note or is this something that God wrote? um, It changes absolutely nothing in terms of doctrine, belief, practice or anything. So even if this were not included, um, it would change nothing. Now, from my perspective, I would disagree with John MacArthur on this. I think the bulk of the evidence argues for its inclusion. And uh, and I when I preached through this passage of scripture, because I taught the gospel of John, I went through the reasons why Uh, you will go into some Christian bookstores and you will purchase a uh, commentary in the gospel of John. And you'll say, well, what happened to the first, you know, 11 verses in chapter eight? And all of a sudden it goes to, um, you know, uh, chapter eight and verse twelve. Well, uh, again, I I, I think that it should be included. Number one, um, the whole flow of thought makes no sense without its inclusion. Uh, The last verse in chapter 7 says, and everyone went to his home. And at the end of the feast, as would happen, everyone would go to his own home. And the chief priests and the Pharisees went home. Nicodemus went home. The temple guards went home. Um, The people of Jerusalem went home. But chapter 8 verse 1 uh, jesus went to the mount of olives so everyone had gone home no one had invited jesus to their home and he goes to the mount of olives and of course this is kind of what he said the foxes have holes the birds of the air have a nest but the son of man has no place to lay his head and so early the next morning he goes back to the temple and john uses a, a greek word that refers to the early dawn hours before sunrise before the people were up so to speak and he he goes there because he's going to teach the people that day and the lord had as a pattern in his life of waking up early and spending time with the father he would often luke will tell us slip away to a quiet place and pray and he comes to the temple that morning and before long the people show up and they sat down and he began to teach them and of course they go through the trap and uh, you know, they found this woman caught in adultery and so forth. And so when you look at the whole, uh, flow of the text, I think it becomes very clear that it should be included. So without taking a lot of time here on the Bible line, what I'm going to encourage you to do is to go to searchtheScriptures.org, uh, click on John, uh, eight, one through 11. And I go through eight reasons why I believe for the inclusion of this passage, that this was part of the original text that God inspired people to uh, to write this. And so that's where I would encourage you to go, and I would start there. And uh, if you have a follow-up question at that point, then uh, you can call me back. But I've already preached on it, gave an hour-long sermon on it, so I'll let you go there, and we'll use that as a reference point. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line
1: hi i have a question for
2: dr Brogy and i'm not sure it's a really easy one to answer i, I mean for him i'm sure it is it's about the seventh day adventists it was my understanding that they did not believe in the trinity and but there may be some groups of them now that do and what is their belief on the trinity and jesus christ
1: well seventh day adventists you know which were really started by ellen g white have always affirmed the doctrine of the trinity so they are trinitarian they've never denied that Uh, They have had some quirky teachings, though, in reference to their doctrine of Christ. Ellen G. White taught that Jesus had a sin nature, but he just never sinned. Well, where she got that is beyond me, except from the visions she had. And, of course, uh, she claimed to have various visions, and she also affirmed that these visions were never to supplant the Bible, but to quote her, these were, this was light given to her to point to a greater light. Well, she was really off on some of her so-called, you know, visions, and they were not consistent with the rest of the Bible. And to say that Jesus had a sin nature was really heretical. And so, if you look at some of the older books that were written by uh, Christians in the body of Christ, often with the gift of discernment, who wrote um, books on the various cults, they would often include. Seventh-day Adventists as a cult. As time progressed, they changed as a denomination. So in the 1960s, when Walter Martin, who without a question was the foremost expert on on various cults of the 20th century, uh, he wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, took that book about 10 years ago and updated it but it's basically Walter Martin's work. But if you go back and you read The Kingdom of the Cults, Dr. Martin will say, while we um, affirm that many Seventh-day Adventists are Christians, we include them in this volume on The Kingdom of the Cults because of some doctrines in the past that they taught that were heretical, but in addition to some doctrines that are taught to this day that are obviously off. Uh, So as time progressed, the Seventh-day Adventist Church rejected the idea that um, Jesus had a sin nature, and they taught, like the rest of the body of Christ, the Immaculate Conception of the Lord. Uh, Now, that's a term Roman Catholics use, and they use it in in a dual way, not only to refer to the Lord Jesus being Immaculately Conceived, but they also say the Virgin Mary was Immaculately Conceived. I don't believe that I believe Mary was a sinner like anyone else she herself in the Magnificat uh, says my soul rejoices in God my Savior no need to have a Savior unless you are a sinner so Mary affirmed her sinfulness as does the rest of Scripture for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God there's only one who is described as being without sin tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin in him he knew no sin Uh, And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the only sinless person who's ever walked on the planet. And that, of course, was proven by his resurrection. He was declared. The resurrection is an announcement. It's a declaration that he is Lord, that he is God, that he is sinless. And we see that through the resurrection of Christ. And that's why the resurrection is central to the preaching of the New Testament. Crucifixion was a common fair in the first century but resurrection was not. Jesus was the first ever to be raised from the dead to in a resurrection body. Now there are other people who were dead, but were raised to life. But the Lord Jesus is the first ever to be raised from the dead in a resurrection body. He's the first fruits of all creation. As Paul will say in first Corinthians 15. So Mary Baker, uh, excuse me, Ellen G. White in essence, denied that by her teaching. Uh, She would have said Christ rose from the dead, and she would have said Christ never sinned, but he had a sin nature. That's just heresy. And she was a confused woman. And look, most cults are based on some extra vision, some extra revelation, some other book in addition to the Bible. And so they admire her, they elevate her, and she came up with, you know, her view of uh, the dietary laws that they should be observed today. And so um, most Seventh day Adventists uh, are vegetarians, though they would technically say that you don't have to be a vegetarian, though Ellen G. White highly recommended it. And they would say that, um, however, that the unclean meats of the Old Testament cannot be eaten. So they would be more like a a Orthodox Jew and they would never eat pork or shellfish or things like that. Uh, But that's all part of the ceremonial law that has been fulfilled in Christ and are no longer binding on Christians. But she even takes it a step further and she would say that. You know, you shouldn't eat any meat at all, though that's not binding on Adventists in fairness to them. Probably their biggest, most distinguishing doctrine, after which they are named, is Seventh-day Adventists. And so they worship on the seventh day of the week, Saturday, instead of the first day of the week. And they have this very elaborate argument trying to say that the Pope of Rome was the one who... Uh, instituted Sunday worship. And from there they go and create all these different scenarios in regards to the Pope and the Antichrist and all those things. And, and um, when in reality, the Pope of Rome did not dictate the first day of the week, but the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ did. So the 10 commandments are still binding, but the application of some of them have changed in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Uh, That's still binding, but the promise that is associated with it has changed. God said, if you do this, it will be well with you and that you may live long in the land. In what land? In the land of Israel, because that's where his people were localized. When Paul quotes it in the New Testament in Ephesians 6, he says that it might be well with you and that you might live long on the earth. Uh, He expands the application of it. And so there is still one day in seven in which God's people are called to worship. And we've blown that off for the most part in evangelicalism. We say, well, if it's convenient or if you feel like it, and if it doesn't interfere with your beach plans or your golf game or your vacation, then, you know, okay, you can go to church. Well, that's just wrong. God calls his people to gather on the first day of the week. And that is to be our habit. Now, there are some people who can't do that, but that's not what he's speaking about. He's not talking about someone who's infirmed and physically unable. We have a TV ministry where uh, it's live streamed for a number of reasons. One is we have missionaries in other parts of the world, sometimes who are eight, nine, 10, 12 hours later, who are listening to our Sunday morning worship services. We have a whole group in Canada who listens to our 915 service and then they attend their church at 11 o'clock. Why? Because they're so hungry for Bible teaching and there's such an absence in our culture today. But we also have elderly people who are unable physically to come to church and they have physical challenges. where they couldn't sit in a church service and so they do live stream and and that's a blessing in our day that we make available to them. But if someone has the physical strength, they should come and they should be here. And I've seen people over the years that I've been a pastor where you think, how do they get here? It is just incredible with all the pain and, and challenges that they have in their physical body and yet they come here. I remember a woman years ago, she had scleroderma and uh scleros is the greek word for skin and uh or derma is and scleros is a greek word for hard and so scleroderma is a hardening of the skin and it's not just the skin but it's all your internal organs and so i remember touching her one day it felt like touching a piece of wood and she just progressively got stiffer and harder and stiffer and harder and she walked almost like a robot when she would come to church because she got to the point where she could barely bend her legs. But she'd come and she taught the kids as long as she could. It was amazing to me if anyone had an excuse to stay home and lay on the bed and you know look for some other alternative, it was people like her. Um, So uh, Seventh-day Adventists are really often a lot of things. Um, In some parts of the world that you go to, like in Eastern Europe, they don't even consider them Christians. Why? Because Seventh-day Adventists in that part of the world are more like old Adventists were. And I would say this, because they put such a high stress on the ceremonial law and our involvement in it, like the dietary laws and so forth, that... um, The average Seventh-day Adventist no longer understands grace. So most Seventh-day Adventists that I witness to, when you ask them the diagnostic questions, one, they don't have an assurance of salvation, and two, uh, they don't know how to have that assurance of salvation. When you ask them why God should let them into heaven, they often will appeal to the law and the things they've done and that they keep the Sabbath and they follow the dietary laws and so forth. And because those things are so emphasized in an unbalanced fashion, uh, they don't understand grace. So when I talk to Seventh Day Adventists, usually that rings a bell in my mind, and I think probably not a believer. And in many cases, I'm right. Not always, but in many cases, I'm right. There are some Seventh Day Adventists that really love the Lord and know Christ is their personal Savior but most of them are way off in on on a number of other issues. If you wanted to study this, I would recommend it would be a good investment. The Kingdom of the Cults, Dr. Walter Martin. You could go online at uh at, at half half.com, which is the eBay side of used books and type in the Kingdom of the Cults and you could probably find it for $2 plus shipping. If you go buy it new, it's probably going to be $30 plus tax, Uh, but uh, you can find an old edition because it's been out for 50 years, and it's still one of the premier works on the cults uh, that have been written in the last uh, 50 years. Anyway, let's go to the next question. Good question.
0: All right. Very good. Um, A dictated question came in. A listener has noticed that many of the churches in our area are opening full-time daycare centers. He's wondering if this is biblical, or does it hurt our message of being Christians?
1: Well, what I would suggest that you might consider doing is going to the sermon that I preached on Mother's Day. It's online, uh, Rick, and uh, we, we talked about the role of moms, or successful mothering, and I hope, if the Lord will allow me, uh, on Father's Day to preach another message called Successful Fathering. But in the message called Successful Mothering, I deal with this issue. So if you go to um, uh, communitybiblechurch.us, you will see the message up there, and I suggest you listen to it. But to answer your question quickly, what I'm about to say is so contrary to the way the average Christian thinks today. Believe it or not, God's ideal for a mother is to be a worker at home. She used to be a worker at home. Uh, Ergos is the word for work. Uh, Oikos is the word for home. And oikos ergos, uh, a home worker. Uh, And empal ergos is a vine worker. Where does a vine worker work? In a vineyard. A geo ergos, geo, we get our word geography or land is what the word means, or dirt. A dirt worker or a land worker. Is translated in the Bible, a farmer. Where does he work? Out in the field. A home worker has as their principal s- a place of work, the home. Not a homemaker. I don't like the word homemaker um, because God doesn't call us homemakers. He calls women home workers. Women with children, of course, is what he's focusing on. He's dealing, too, with the ideal. He's assuming the woman is married. She's not divorced against her will. She's not a single mom. He's dealing with one who is married because the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children. You say, doesn't that just come naturally? Well, some degree of it, to some degree it does, but much of it is learned because love has boundaries. It has parameters. It has principles on which it is based. And where do you learn those principles from the word of God? And so, older women, part of their ministry in the church is to teach the next generation, even if it's out of their failure. So, when a church opens a daycare center, now I could be wrong, but I don't know of a single church in America that has a daycare center exclusively to single moms. I've never seen one. Um, Why? Well, because they just don't. Uh, They open, I don't care what you call it, a daycare center, a preschool you know, an educational learning center. It's basically encouraging a model that is not healthy. It's basically saying, we sanction as a church, mom, you dropping your children off in our place so that you can go out and work and have a career. And that's not what you want to encourage. Now, if you want the average kind of child that's growing up in America, then do that. Drop your kids off in daycare. Let someone else raise them. Let someone else uh, discipline them in the limited way that they can even legally do it. Let someone else have the commitment that they have that will never even begin to measure to your commitment. Uh, And you'll have the kind of kids that are being raised in America. But if you want to do it God's way, then you raise those children yourself. When when couples come to me for marriage counseling, that young man has to be able to, if i'm going to marry him to demonstrate that he can leave and cleave that all by himself he can support that woman so that if when children come into the home they have not made a two income salary, salary lifestyle but they live on his income and i say i just married a young couple and they're committed to this and you know they're living off of his income and her income they're banking maybe saving as a down payment and when god blesses them with children she'll be able to stay home and she won't have to hand that baby to someone else. So uh, we've created a a horrible model in the church and we've done this in Christian schools where we've created daycare for moms to put their kids into uh, so that they can teach in the school or so that they can go out and have a job so they can afford to send that child to that Christian school. And we've just got it totally backwards And we are paying a huge, huge price for ignoring what God plainly says. So I think churches are very unwise when they do this. I remember speaking to the president of a major evangelical seminary, and we were at a conference that was put on by CBMW, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is a great Christian ministry. My son-in-law is the executive director, but this was, 25 years ago, ever before. Well, he was only in diapers, I guess. But um, in either case, uh, they had a speaker there. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, where I am doing my doctoral work, the students come in and they drop their kids off, the moms who are maybe working on a master's degree, or they drop their kids off as moms so that the husband can afford to go to seminary and she goes out and gets a job I said, you know, if, if we're really speaking here about, you know, God's ideal, are we modeling that in our seminaries by allowing moms to drop their kids off in Christian daycare? And it was Christian daycare so that they can go out and get a job. And I said, so what happens when that man then steps into the pulpit three, four years later and he says, well, this is what you should do. But did they do that? And so it really becomes a double standard. And to the credit of that seminary president, he went back, spoke to his board, and they stopped daycare in their seminary, which I think was a huge, huge, huge step on his part. Uh, And I'm glad God gave me a small part in being able to uh, help people to think that through. So no, I'm not in favor of Christian daycare centers. It's a huge mistake. It's a huge error. It's it's a double standard. You know, when I used to hire secretaries on my staff who were single or married without children, I would tell them, assuming they were in the childbearing years, that if God blesses them with a child, and this was in the employment letter that I drafted to them, that if God blesses them with a baby, that their employment will terminate uh, prior to that baby being born. Why did I do that? Because I wasn't going to run a double standard and say, well, this is what we believe, but this is what we're going to do. So again, I, I think there's probably some well-meaning believers out here who have not just thought this through because again, we live in a day where folks are undertaught and everything you believe is based on something. And if your mind's not being renewed through the word of God, it's going to be based on false premise. So go to the website, communitybiblechurch.us, listen to Successful Mothering, and i walk through this issue very, very, very carefully, because I want you to understand, this is not my opinion. This is what God says, and we're either going to be smarter than God and do it our way, or we're going to listen to God.
0: All right, very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us. As Greg has from Wellington, Florida, at TBL at net, He writes, I recently completed the Spiritual Gifts Questionnaire, which indicated that my spiritual gifts are teaching, discernment, and prophecy. Would you please explain each of these gifts to me and how I can use them to help others?
1: Well, you probably don't have all three of those gifts. It's, I suppose, relatively possible, but probably doubtful. And if you take the course that I offer on the subject of spiritual gifts, and it's a subject that's dear to me, I did my doctoral dissertation. It was entitled "The uh, the, Impl- the Development and Implementation of a Spiritual Gift Based Ministry for the Local Church." That was the title of my doctoral dissertation. So I, I I obviously spent a lot of time, you know, researching what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, and and read all the major works that had been published in the prior hundred years before I wrote it. Um, what is interesting, though, is that there are some similarities between some gifts. For instance, there's the gift of teaching and the gift of pastor-teacher. So if you take a spiritual gifts inventory, and I offer one at searchthescriptures.org if you're interested, go to searchthescriptures, all one word, dot .org. It's don't go to dot .com, that's a different group, .org, it's an organization, and click on the spiritual gifts test, you can take it and it will score you. And you might find, for instance, that you would score really high in teaching and in pastor teacher. Why? Because there's similarities between the two. And so what's the difference? Well, like with teaching, you have a desire to communicate the truth of what God is saying and helping people to understand it so they can apply it. But with uh, the gift of pastor teacher, there's a shepherding dimension to your teaching. And there's a care factor that is going to be emphasized that wouldn't necessarily be emphasized in the gift of teaching. So like, for instance, you mentioned here prophecy and teaching. There's some common components between the two. Uh, The gift of prophecy is a little bit different in that it's, it's focus as it teaches the Word of God is not simply to the mind, though we speak to the mind because our faith is based on truth that is intellectually embraced, but it has a very honing effect on the heart on a single point maybe that the prophet of God wants to bring home. Uh, Charles Stanley who I think plays on this station at 9.30 at night, maybe, Rick, or 9 o'clock at night. Adrian Rogers is at 9.30, I think. And 6 in the morning. Yeah. um, He he would be an example of someone with the um, gift of prophecy. If you listen to a message that he preaches, he's got like one thing he wants you to walk away with. So he's teaching the Bible, but he's honing a singular point. And so, um, again, what you might want to do is go online and you can go to the Institute of Biblical Studies that we mentioned earlier in the hour and the spiritual gifts uh, course that we offer is one of the elective courses. You might want to take it and you'll work through a hundred page notebook. All the messages are there online that you can download into your computer or your search the scriptures phone app. Um, The note taking Uh, outlines if you want them you can order those by going to search the org. and i go through each of the spiritual gifts and there are fine differences and how they are slightly different and so that the, the genesis of your question tells me that some of those fine nuances you don't understand and i can give you a quick answer but i'd rather have you have the detailed answer because it's clear to me that you want to use your gift and you want to implement your gift So what we do in the course is we not only help people to discover their gift, but then with each gift, we try to ask, well, if I have the gift of prophecy or teaching or discernment or serving or hospitality, how do I implement this in the local assembly? What does that look like? And we attempt to answer those issues as well. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right. Jonathan dictated a question. He says, I've been listening to the bibliology series that you taught years ago. In the section on the evidences for the inspiration of Scripture, you mentioned that all the apostles except for John died a martyr's death. Can you tell me where I can find evidence of this, whether in the New Testament or outside the New Testament? I've heard you and other pastors say it. Where
1: can I find evidence of it? Well, it's a good question. Obviously, um, a lot of the deaths of the apostles are just not recorded in the Bible. Now, the apostle James Uh, he's recorded he's the first apostle to die and he died a a martyr's death and that he's beheaded by herod so we know how he died jesus prophesied how uh, the apostle peter would die that he would be crucified and of course um, history records that And it seems to be a very reliable tradition that when they went to crucify the Apostle Peter, he said, I don't deserve to be crucified as my Lord did. And he requested they crucify him upside down. And indeed they did. So, again, what we know from Scripture, we can dogmatically say there are some things we don't know because it's not recorded in scripture and so then it becomes an issue of tradition by tradition we mean historical records or what christians have affirmed throughout the centuries some of the traditions have some real strong merit in that there were historians that lived during that time frame that record some of these if you don't want to read through a lot of those it's very laborious There was a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf, and he wrote a book on the uh, four evangelists. And within that book, he argues and explains, based on ancient sources, how the various apostles died. Simon Greenleaf was the founder of Harvard Law School, and he, uh, for many years, mocked uh, Christianity, mocked the believers who were there, And he wrote a two-volume series called The Laws of Legal Evidence that was used in every law school in the country until as recently as maybe 50 years ago. It was basically a set of tests that you would apply to a given situation to see whether something could hold up as a fact in a court of law. And Dr. Greenleaf was challenged by some believers in his day. He lived in the 1800s and was asked to take the laws of legal, legal evidence and apply it to the resurrection of Christ. And he thought, you know, that was one of the greatest challenges any students had ever put before him. And he thought he would just silence these guys. And in the process of studying, like Thomas, he fell on his face and he said, my Lord and my God. And he became a great apologist for Christianity as he continued to teach there at Harvard Law School. Um, But I would read his book on the four evangelists and one of many apologetic works that he wrote. And he gives good historical documentation as to how the various apostles died good question let's go to the next one
0: all right Uh, Jacqueline writes how does a Christian explain a talking snake in the garden the snake is never identified as Satan we know from the scriptures that a donkey was given the ability to speak from the Lord how was this snake capable of speaking
1: well I suppose if you can believe Genesis 1 1 you can believe anything In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the most attacked verse in all the Bible is Genesis 1-1. Satan wants people to believe that God did not create the heavens and the earth, that all that we see, all that we witness came here through some other means, Uh, some evolutionary means, some big bang theory, whatever it is that people are advocating depending on the century that they live on, live in. But for the last you know, 150 years, Satan has worked very hard to discredit the authority of the Bible. And it really goes back to what he did in the Garden of Eden when he said, did God say? So if God can create the heavens and the earth, he, he can do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to make a donkey talk, he can do it. And if he wants to make a serpent talk, he can do it. And of course, the serpent in all Jewish literature is uh, universally accepted as, a, um, as Satan himself in animal form at this point. Uh, God can take on an, a theophany, different forms, and the devil as an angel uh, was able to take on different forms. And at this point, unlike maybe the serpents of our day, he was considered beautiful. Today, post-fall, serpents are considered frightful to a lot of people but he was considered beautiful and of course the identification of the serpent is given in scripture Uh, for instance in revelation 20 it says and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan so the Bible is unequivocally clear as to the identification of the serpent that it is Satan himself Uh, Paul likewise in uh, I think it's uh, 2nd Corinthians 11 let me just turn there real quickly yeah, here it is. He says, um, I wish uh, that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So Paul acknowledges the serpent as being this evil one. He's given many names in scripture. Uh, The serpent of old, as we just read from the revelation is one of the titles that he's given. He's called the God of this world uh, because with a small G, why? Because uh, he is the one who is energizing the world system. Adam lost his right to rule. He had a real right, but he lost it. And the second Adam has come to change that. He's called the devil, uh, which means slanderer, Um, Satan, which means adversary. He's called the tempter. He's called a murder, a a lion. He's like a lion. Uh, We just read he's a, he's a serpent. Um, He's an angel of light and so forth, the ruler of this world. So God gives him many different titles, but there's no question that he spoke because God said he spoke. Now, unless you take um, some of these early chapters in Genesis as poetry, uh, like Tim Keller does, um, then you're going to have trouble understanding this. But there's no reason to take um, the opening chapters of, as poetry. They are history, they are uh, speaking of what actually happened, what actually took place, what literally happened. How do I know it's not poetry? Because Jesus treated the early chapters as Genesis as historical, not as some form of poetry. So anyway, let's go to the next question.
0: All right. A listener just called and asked the following. He meets once a week with friends and plays a game of poker. They all work and provide for their families, and they just do this for fun. They don't play for large sums of money, just change.
1: Is this okay? Well, it depends on the kind of example I suppose you're trying to set. Um, There is nothing inherently wrong with the game of poker, per se. Uh, What made it evil, I suppose, in much Christian preaching in the early part of the 20th century is that poker cards um, were created for that purpose. The the first card game was a poker game. Uh, As time progressed, uh, people invented a lot of different games from playing cards, whether it's fish or old maid or solitaire or whatever you can think of. But poker in its early days was associated with gambling. And so Christians preached against card playing because they were preaching against gambling and gambling is a form of covetousness. So today, unfortunately, sometimes people will preach against something without really understanding the principle behind it so God does say that we're to abstain from every appearance of evil and you certainly don't want to be misunderstood and you certainly don't want to be a stumbling block. You're not to do anything by what which causes your brother to stumble. And I would say that the whole poker thing has really taken on a new meaning in the last decade or so. Uh, I think there's some television station that highlights it because uh, I was eating in a restaurant. I said, what's it? What's that? And, um, and someone said, oh, that's, that's the poker station. And I don't know if that's a dedicated station or just what, but, you know, they show these guys playing cards, and, and we're talking about big sums of money. And what has happened is that a lot of youth, and this is very, very popular on college campuses right now, are deeply engaged in poker. And they're not playing for change, they're playing, playing for, you know, fives and tens and twenties. And everybody wants to make it big. So you've got to be really careful here in terms of what kind of an example are you setting as a Christian. I don't care if you're playing for pennies. What kind of an example are you setting for children and other people who may look at you? Because you don't want to be a stumbling block. You're not to do anything by which your brother stumbles. And someone may look at you and say, well, he's a strong Christian and he plays poker. Why can't I? But they have a spirit of covetousness within them that God has not grown out of them and matured through them, and their poker becomes not what you would want it to be. And I've seen families destroyed by gambling, totally destroyed, where people have lost the house and the car, and and they're thinking they're going to make it rich. And so it can be very, very dangerous and addictive to a lot of people. And I would say now in America, since poker has been kind of revised It has been revised in a negative way where it's become highly um, addictive in nature and highly, uh, and there's big stakes that are involved. So, you know, I I don't want to live on the edge of sin. I want to live on the edge of obedience and I don't want to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. And I don't want anyone to look at me and say, well, you know, he has the freedom to do it or he now endorses poker. He plays poker and I I don't want to do anything that even has the appearance of evil. Anyway, um, yeah, Jerry Jenkins, who, of course, uh, and James McDonald, you know, we we left the the Moody network. And one of the reasons, if you've read the letter online, and Rick was just reminding me of that, and I thank you for that. um, Jerry Jenkins, who was on the board at Moody, has a real gambling problem and has had a real gambling problem. And World Magazine covered that. And James McDonald, you know, Moody has played him for a long time, but I thought we're not playing James McDonald. He may be on the Moody network, but when we were on it, we didn't play him. Why? Well, not just because of uh, the fact that he had women playing roles that were not biblically sound roles, which I'm dealing with right now. Can women be pastors or can women teach at a conference where there was a mixed audience or on a cruise or whatever it might be? Uh, Is that biblical? But he has a problem or has had a problem with gambling and it's come and gone and come and gone. And, uh, you know, so Moody uh, recently came out with a new policy uh, saying that, you know, gambling in moderation and drinking in moderation are fine. I, I think that's very destructive. And I think they've sown the seeds for destruction in their university. I think it's going to bring great harm upon Moody. And I say that with a sense of grief in my heart because they've had such a great history. Uh, they they had a policy of no drinking for a hundred years. Why do they need to change that? And I fear too that now some of the feminist issues are entering into that school as well. So I'm very concerned. And if someone's not well grounded in discerning and thought through these issues, you know, they're just going to be called legalists. And they're going to be made to look stupid and ignorant and, you know, old fashioned and out of date and out of touch. And look, I went through a four year master's program and a three year doctoral program. And I, I'm not out of touch and I've studied these issues in tremendous depth and they're important to me. Um, and if you know me, you know that my appeal is going to be to the word of God and what the Lord has to say. And I, I don't think Christians were wrong for hundreds of years on these issues. I think some of the modern Christians are wrong. And it's, and it's sad. Well, you hear the music, and we're out of time. Uh, for the ladies who are listening, I want to encourage you to go to communitybiblechurch.us. If you've not registered for the Women's Conference, it's coming up shortly. On June the 13th, it's a Saturday night. It's going to be a couple hours long. Get your husband's to take care of the kids. A former Victoria's Secret model has moved from model to role model. And she's going to come and tell her story. If you're a believer, you should come and bring an unsaved person with you. Because that's the whole focus of the meeting. To get people out of hell and into heaven. To get people from under the wrath of God. Into favor with God. Into a friendship with God. So it's a great opportunity. It's limited to the first 1,800 who sign up. And hundreds have already signed up. So if you want to go, sign up and bring a friend with you. Hope you have a great day.